0: Respect for the word and turn to 1 Corinthians nine. First Corinthians nine. And we'll be reading verses fifteen through eighteen. First Corinthians nine, fifteen to eighteen. Here is the infallible, inspired, ineric word of God. But I have used none of these things, and I am not writing these things so that it will be done so in my case, for it would be better for me to die. Then have any man make my boast an empty one. For if I preach the gospel, I have nothing to boast of. I am under compulsion. For woe is me if I do not preach the gospel. For if I do this voluntarily, I have a reward. But if against my will, I have a stewardship entrusted to me. What then is my reward? That when I preach the gospel... I may offer the Gospel without charge so as not to make full use of my right in the Gospel. Let's ask God to help us understand. Father in Heaven, this morning we know that Your Word restores our soul. We pray now that Your Word would restore us and refresh us. Would give strength to our weariness. That would invigorate us spiritually that we would grow in the grace of the Lord Jesus. And as we do that, as we gain assurance that He's our Savior, as we gain certainty of the promises of salvation, and that we come uh, to feel the power of Your Word, that we would know for certain that it is inspired and therefore infallible and authoritative to direct all of our life. And as we become convinced of those things, and may your word be restoring to us to reshape us and reclaim our lives for Jesus Christ, and that we may submit unto his lordship in all of our life, and then be willing to be made used as faithful servants to Jesus. This we ask in his name. Amen. You may be seated. Well, as we come to our passage before us this morning, verses 15 through 18, I realize that there may be some temptation uh, to sort of drift away in our thinking. Uh, Because, after all, it does seem to continue to cover the same ground that we have been dealing with over the past uh, several verses that we've been examining in this passage. Uh, What Paul does here is he reminds us of what he's already said in verse 12 that though he has a right to uh, take uh, compensation for the preaching of the gospel, he does not do that. And since we already know what the aim of these verses is, going back to chapter 8, we know the aim of these verses is to reinforce in our thinking the fact that though we have Christian liberty, we also have a responsibility to use it in a biblical way. That means in such a way that we don't bring Uh, other weaker believers uh, into a a period of great uh, spiritual difficulty and trouble as they use their liberty against their conscience. And we know that now in chapter 9 the apostle is appealing to his own example how he has certain privileges as an apostle and one of those privileges is the right to receive a paycheck and he extensively argued for the grounds of that and then he says uh, that I have not used that liberty And now this is an example of how to moderate the use of Christian liberty in order to be a blessing and a benefit to other Christians. So we know all of that. We say, well, okay, we come to this pastor and say, uh, what we're hearing again is more of the same. So why? Uh, should we spend so much time evaluating this passage. And I want to argue that this passage really, in a sense, is a key to unlocking uh, the power of this illustration here from his own life. Because what we learn in these verses is not just that Paul sacrifices liberty, but we learn additionally the reason why. We learn the reason why the Apostle Paul has determined Uh, to set aside his liberty in order to be a blessing to other Christians. And the key to this is that he has grasped his identity. He has grasped his identity, the divinely assigned identity. That is the key to understanding the self-sacrifice. And the identity that he shares with us and explains is the basis and the reason for why he is able to deny himself privileges is that he considers himself to be a slave of Jesus Christ and therefore divinely obligated to do whatever it takes to sacrifice himself for the advancement of the gospel. In other words, so what we learn from this passage here for ourselves is that the key to being able to moderate the use of our Christian liberty and to be a blessing to other Christians and to sacrifice ourselves is that we have to grasp our identity as it has been assigned to us in Jesus Christ through the gospel. Now, that's the big picture here of our passage. Jump into the argument that the Apostle makes beginning with verse 15. And the first thing we see here in verse 15 is the boast that the Apostle Paul makes. The boast that he makes. And we see him begin that argument here when he says, I have used none of these things. I have used none of these things. And, The things that he is referring to, obviously, is the fact that he has a right to receive compensation for the preaching of the gospel. He says, uh, I have used none of these things, and he goes on to say even further, and I am not writing these things so that it will be done so in my case. Uh, You see, the impression may now be received by the Corinthians that since Paul has given this extensive defense of his rights and privileges as an apostle, particularly to receive compensation for preaching, he says the Corinthians may get the wrong impression now that the apostle is saying in sort of a subtle or understated kind of a way that that they should give him a paycheck. Uh, In other words... They may think he is angling at something that he is really not. And he says, I have resolved not to make use of these things. And in the original, make use of is in the perfect tense. Paul is saying here, by the way he states it grammatically, that he has determined to not now but ever cash in on his privileges. He says it so emphatically here. Towards the end of verse 15, he says, It would be better for me to die than to make use of these privileges and make my boast an empty one. Very passionate statement here of the Apostle's rejection of his own rights and liberties. I would rather die And in the original, all commentators uh, see what's here is that it's a very uh, awkward and abrupt statement. On one hand, he says, I would rather die. Then it gets smoothed out in our translation to say, I would rather die than have any man make my boast empty. But it doesn't really read that way. It just says, I would rather die. The statement cuts off, and then he goes on to say, I don't want anybody to make my boast an empty one. You see, it underscores the passionate and emotional uh, position that the apostle has. He doesn't want anybody to take away the force of his boasting. We hear that word boasting, we may misunderstand it to be sort of an arrogance, a pride. After all, Paul says, I'm not like everybody else, I'm not like the rest of the apostles and ministers. Uh, I'm sort of heroic in my passionate pursuit of the gospel. That's not what he means. He's saying he's glorying in the fact that he has been given the privilege to be a servant of Christ and to do whatever it takes to serve Jesus, even if that means not receiving compensation. And that's the boast. He does not receive a compensation for his preaching of the word. Now, what we're going to see here now in the following verses is that Paul explains why. And this is the key to understanding the passage. In verse 16, we receive the first reason for why the Apostle Paul decides or determines not to receive compensation. And the first thing he says here in verse 16, he says, I preach the gospel, I have nothing to boast of, for I am under compulsion, for woe is me if I don't preach the gospel. He says, first of all, I want you to understand that there is no boasting on my part at all for what I do in preaching the gospel. And the reason he says there's no boasting in the fact that I preach is because he says it's something that I have to do. I'm under a compulsion, and woe is me if I don't preach the Gospel. In other words, what the Apostle Paul is saying, he preaches uh, with this sense of impending doom over his head if he should not preach. He is almost possessed, he is saying. He is overcome with this divine urge to preach Jesus Christ. There's no way he can not do it. In a sense, he's being constantly compelled and forced to fulfill this calling to preach. Woe is me. Commentators have analyzed this verse and have picked up well that the Apostle Paul here seems to be echoing the language of the Old Testament prophets. uh, Jeremiah comes to mind first of all as we think about this connection Jeremiah chapter 20 uh, the prophet complains that he tries to forget about preaching He he tries to forget about his duty and obligation to preach the word of God but when he tries to forget his calling he says his heart becomes like burning fire which is shut up in his bones. And he gets weary. That's the woe, and that's the sense of compulsion. He would rather not preach, because in his preaching, uh, the prophet is constantly being persecuted and tormented by the people of God around him for the things that he is saying. He doesn't prophesy smooth things. He doesn't prophesy easy things. He doesn't prophesy things to the people of God that they would like to hear. Instead, He prophesies unto them that God is going to bring judgment upon them for their disobedience and their transgression of the law and the covenant. You see? And He says because He does that, He is constantly being tormented and assaulted and persecuted by the people of God to the point that He would rather stop preaching the Word of God. And to block out of his mind this fact that God has called him to do this. He says, sometimes I'd rather just crawl under a rock. Have people forget that I'm even here. But he says, when I do that, the Word of God gets so heavy within my soul that it begins to feel like there is a fire within me. And I grow weary if I don't preach the Word. You know, that's not just an Old Testament thing. The apostles John and Peter say the same thing as they're brought before the Sanhedrin in in Acts chapter 4. And they've been told not to preach. They've been warned not to preach. In fact, they've been beaten and told not to preach. And the next thing you know, back in chapter 4, they're out there again in the temple precincts and they're preaching the word of Jesus Christ And the Sanhedrin brings them before them again. And uh, says, we've already been over this ground before. We've already explained to you that you're not authorized to be uh, preaching here in the temple precincts. And they say, what is your answer? And the answer that the Apostle Peter and the Apostle John say is we cannot stop but speaking about what we have seen and heard. Uh, Literally in the original it says, we don't have the power not to speak. Yes, that sense of Jeremiah. I try to forget him. I try to wish this calling away because I I would rather not do it. It's not good for my health. It's not good for my personal safety. And besides that, it seems like the people of God would rather not hear what I had to say anyway. And we've tried to staple our mouths shut. We've tried to... uh, We've tried to tape our mouth closed. And we have not the power to say no to God. It's as if they are possessed. Possessed by a power and an impulse that drives them to speak. All of that stands behind the backdrop of this verse here in verse 16 when Paul says, I am under a compulsion. I can't help. But open my mouth. You see, I can't boast in that. I can't boast in that privilege. I can't boast in my office and my calling because, because I simply can't do anything else. Before we move on to the next reason that the Apostle Paul supplies here, I, I want to make this just a point of application unto us this morning. That is still the acid test for a call to ministry. That is an acid test for the call to ministry. That the person who believes they are called senses that they are under such a compulsion that woe is unto them if they preach not the gospel. C.H. Spurgeon used to relate how when he was running his preacher's college in London, uh, would regularly have people come to him. Men who uh, thought that they had some sort of a call to the ministry and Is he would interview them and ask them why they would, they would, they would stammer around and offer all kinds of justifications and explanations for why they believed that they had been called uh, to the ministry and to call to preach. And his constant advice, he tells us, was to relate to them, if you can do anything else at all, do it. If you can do anything else at all and be satisfied and content, you must not be called to the ministry because a person who is called to the ministry can't stand still doing anything else. You see, that's the acid test of the call to ministry. We might think that that is sort of a, an unromantic way of thinking about the ministry. And we may think that the person who believes that they are called is is uh, after a season of reflection upon their gifts and abilities uh all of a sudden discovers that uh it seems like they have the abilities to match up to the call and then they decide to go on to do it or as if that they have gone on to a career counselor and they sit down with him at college or uh, in high school somewhere and uh, the counselor lays before them a whole uh, set of options uh, you could be a fireman uh, you could be a policeman Uh, You could go to trade school. You could be a doctor. You could be a lawyer. Uh, You could be a minister. And they lay out the callings and the job descriptions and the kinds of education. And the person says, hey, you know what? I think I'd like to be, I'd like to be a minister. As if you choose it. What Paul says here, I am under a compulsion. Woe is me if I don't preach the gospel. Paul is saying, You don't choose it. It chooses you. God chooses you. God puts the compulsion there in the heart. And the person who has that call feels a terrible restlessness and discomfort until they say yes. That's whether you know that you've been called. And so Paul says, I don't boast in the ministry of the fact that I preach. God put me here, and He will not allow me to do anything else but to preach. The second thing He says now in verse 17 to defend uh, uh, this fact that He doesn't boast in the call to preach is unfolded in verse 17. He says, If I do this voluntarily, I have a reward. But if against my will, I have a stewardship entrusted to me you see here's the second reason and it's somewhat confusing at first he says in verse 17 if, if I preach the gospel uh, voluntarily then I have a wage bad translation here in verse 17 uh, it says a reward it's misthos, it's a wage it's, it's the compensation for the work done And it may seem sort of confusing, but what the Apostle is saying essentially here is he said, if I had taken up the ministry voluntarily, then this is exactly what I would demand, is a salary. If I had done this voluntarily, it's my responsibility to sit down with you and negotiate a salary up front before I take up the call. That's just the way things work. That's what they were used to. And that's what the Corinthians, in a sense, are are stumped by with the Apostle because the rest of the ministers they seem to be aware of had that sort of a mentality that because they had come to Corinth uh, voluntarily, that they were rightfully owed their compensation. And the apostle says, I didn't come here voluntarily. God compelled me to come here, and then God compelled me to preach here. And so he says, second of all, if I do this against my will, I have a stewardship entrusted to me. And that's what the Apostle is saying. Now, I did not come here voluntarily. I came here under constraint. I came here under compulsion. And he explains the reason why he has. And this is the key to the passage. It's his identity. I have a stewardship entrusted to me. A stewardship entrusted to me. That word steward is key to unlocking the passage. A steward is somebody who is a slave. It's somebody who is under divine obligation or rather not divine obligation, but under human obligation to serve in a particular capacity as a manager or somebody who uh, runs a, a business or a corporation. And here the Apostle is saying, that's his identity. He is a steward. He is under orders. He is under obligation. Duty has been laid upon him. He is required to do what he does. And because he is a slave, and because this obligation is upon him, He doesn't expect compensation. He does what a slave does, which is serve God without pay. Jesus describes this in Luke chapter 17. He says, uh, You too, when you have done all of these things which you are commanded to, you say, We are unworthy slaves, and we have done that which we ought to have done. You see... Slaves serve out of obligation, expecting no compensation. And Paul has identified himself now, which is the key to the passage. He's identified himself as a slave by divine appointment. And therefore, he expects no compensation. Now, before we apply that concept, let's look at one last thing in verse 18. He says, what then is my reward? Again, a bad translation. It's the very same word that was in verse 17. misthos. He says, what is my wage? It seems that all this talk about compensation and a wage has driven the Apostle Paul to raise the question. And in a sense, it's only a natural question to ask. What is my wage? You know somebody as gifted as the Apostle Paul? somebody as hard-working as the apostle, somebody as fruitful and productive as he has been in the ministry of the gospel, it's only natural that they would ask the question, what is my wage? And here says Paul, is his wage. That when I preach the gospel, I offer the gospel without charge. So as not to make full use of my right In the gospel. You see, Paul says, what is my wage? My wage is to preach freely. My wage is to preach without anybody giving me anything for what I do. So that it will be made clear that when I do this, when I preach under compulsion, when I preach the gospel to you, everybody will know this. That because I preach without compensation, they will know I am marked out as a slave of Jesus Christ. That's the sense. Very important for us to get that. He says, through this, through preaching, without compensation, it is a constant affirmation to myself and to everyone around me that I am Christ's slave. And then he says, and the reason or the result of all of this is that I don't make use of my right. In the gospel That word right Is the word that connects This whole illustration Back to The whole point Of chapter 8 Which is Using Christian liberty That's the right It's the same word that's used in chapter 8 Using Christian liberty In a moderate And responsible And restrained way you see, Paul ties his example back into the broader point of the entire passage. And he says, the reason why I do all this, what's motivating, what stands behind what I'm doing is this. It's so that I will make it clear that I have moderated my liberty. I have sacrificed my liberty for all who are under the ministry. So that they will have an example of how to moderate and to sacrifice their freedoms in Jesus Christ. The question that we have to answer now as we wind down to application this morning, we understand his argument. It's fairly simple. We understand his argument. He says, I'm going to present myself as an example or an illustration of what I mean. He states the example. He's an apostle. He has a legitimate claim to compensation. He says, that's the example or the illustration of me sacrificing my freedoms. He says, you must follow suit. That is not hard to understand. Everyone here can understand that argument. But the key to this passage is how is it how is it that the Apostle can do this? After all, this is the person, as he compares himself to other Apostles in 2 Corinthians chapter 11, he says he's received more revelation, he's been in more imprisonments, he's suffered more beatings, he has labored more, he has been in sleepless nights more, he's been in dangers more, he's been without food and clothing more, he's slept in the cold more, he daily feels the pressures of all of the churches more than any of the Apostles. And we have to ask ourselves, this kind of person... How does he do it? This towering figure. How does he humble himself to the point of openly calling himself a slave? And fulfilling this divine calling. How does he deny himself these privileges when he's so significant and so sold out and so productive? We won't understand how to apply this to ourselves unless we answer that question. The first answer to that question, as we come to understand now the basis of Paul's boast, is that he has a subjective awareness of the fact that he's unworthy to be what he is. He has a subjective awareness of the fact that he is unworthy to be called a slave. Now again, I told you that sense of self-identity is so crucial to understanding and unlocking the significance of Paul's illustration. He repeatedly identifies himself as a slave throughout all of his writings. Romans chapter one, 1 he calls himself a bondservant of Jesus Christ. Galatians 1.10, he says he strives to please God because he is a bondservant of Jesus Christ. Philippians 1.1 Paul and Timothy servants of Jesus Christ First Corinthians 4.1 He says Let a man regard us in this manner As servants of Christ And steward That is slaves of the mysteries of God This is exactly how Paul conceives of himself He applies the concept and the title to himself Over and over Slave Consciously aware It shapes his concept of self He says This is what I am it was a very culturally relevant example. Everyone in the Roman Empire knew what a slave was. In fact, a great and significant portion of the Roman population were slaves. They had no rights. They had no civic privileges. They had no liberties. They received no pay. And they were treated like property. When Paul calls himself a slave, people understood what it meant. It meant to everyone that a person who is a slave is merely property. And you know, I suppose if we just stopped right there, we would have a significant starting point to help us understand how to apply this passage to ourselves. Self-identity. We're just slaves. We're owned by Jesus Christ. So the Catechism even talks about that. It expounds what it means to confess that Jesus Christ is our Lord. It says that He has redeemed and purchased us with His precious blood. And because He is our Lord, because He is our Master, because we are His possessions, because we are His slaves, it means that He has right of full ownership of our lives and He has every authority to tell us what to do, and we have every obligation to do only what He says to do. That would be a significant starting point in figuring out how to apply this concept of moderating and sacrificing ourselves for others. If we walked away with that this morning clearly in our head, we are slaves of Christ, and because we are slaves of Christ, that means we must subject ourselves completely to his command and control, we would have an enormously important starting point for the Christian life. But that's not where Paul is. It's not just that he is self consciously aware of his status that he's a slave. It's that he's self consciously aware that he is unworthy to be. A lowly slave of Christ. That's the key. It's that he is self-conscious of being unworthy to be the meanest, the lowest thing that you can be. How do we know that? Paul connects these ideas. You don't have to turn to but First Timothy chapter 1. 1 Timothy chapter 1, where in verse 12 he rejoices in the fact that Christ has put him in gospel ministry. The same thing that he calls a stewardship over here in 1 Corinthians 9. He rejoices in this stewardship. He rejoices in this calling to be a slave of Christ. And the particular aspect of that is he is obligated now to preach the gospel. He says over there, That this is what Christ found him as in verse 13. A blasphemer, a persecutor, and a violent aggressor who was shown mercy. You see, those three terms mark out the outline of what Paul was before he came to Jesus Christ. He was a blasphemer. That means that he led others to defame Christ and he personally defamed Christ. He says he was a persecutor and we get some sense of what that means in Galatians chapter 1. And he says he persecuted the church beyond measure and we plug what we know of that in from Acts chapter 22 and 26 where it says He would regularly beat people. He would regularly bring people into court for their confession of Christ. He even presided over the execution of Christian believers. You see, that's the persecution. He says, that's what I did before I came to Jesus Christ. I persecuted an attempt to stamp out and suppress the name of Christ upon earth. And then thirdly, he says he was a violent aggressor. He was arrogant. Arrogant. And also sadistically violent. John Stott suggested it means he found satisfaction in insulting, humiliating, and hurting other people. That was his life. You see, we have to plug all of this into uh, Paul's understanding of himself. It's not just that he's a slave. He's unworthy to be that. He says, I was a persecutor, I was a blasphemer, I was a violent man, and then Christ showed me mercy. You see, it's underscored in the original. Mercy means to give help to somebody who's in distress. And then verse 14, he says, more abundant was the grace. And you can't miss it in the original because it's thrown forward into the sentence to emphasize the point that the Apostle Paul is accenting. is that God's grace was more sufficient. You see, he was in a place of, of, of rebelliousness and sin, openly violating the will of God and oppressing Christ and blaspheming Christ and His church. A persecutor, an oppressor. A blasphemer, a violent man, but God showed mercy. You see, in all of this, he underscores the principal point. That he is unworthy to even be called a slave. And that is the foundation for being able to begin to sacrifice self. You say, we say it's so hard to sacrifice So hard to set our will aside. So hard to set aside our desires. I'm just so large in my own thinking, and if no one watches out for me, who else will? Paul says it's all wrong if that's the way you think of things because you're just a lowly slave. And then he says what you need to understand beyond that is you're not even worthy to be called a slave. You know, if you don't understand that, of yourself this morning. If you don't understand that you are unworthy to be considered the lowest thing you can imagine. A slave. Then you haven't even begun to understand the gospel of Jesus Christ. There's a distorted understanding of the gospel that's at I front today. And it is this. That the gospel is about bolstering and building up my sense of self-esteem. The Gospel is about telling me that I am a good person after all. The Gospel is about something positive. It's about building me up And until I have a strong sense of self and of self-esteem and self-worth. The Gospel tells me that. The Apostle says is you can throw your self-esteem out the window because the issue is not what you think of yourself in that way. The issue is this, is if you understand that you're not even worthy of being called a servant of Jesus Christ. You see, one of the greatest sins the Christian can ever commit is overestimation of self. Overestimation of their significance. Overestimation of their goodness. Paul wouldn't do that. He exalts the conscious awareness of the fact that he is unworthy to be called a servant of Christ. The fuel and motivation for obedience and self-sacrifice to supporting people of God is that you know you're not even worthy to be called the child of God. If you don't understand that, I will tell you very frankly this morning that you don't understand the gospel. You do not understand the gospel if you think you're anything more than that. Another thing I would like to say here before I move on to apply the second point of this message this morning, and that is this, that not only is a conscious awareness of the the fact that you are unworthy to be called a slave, that's the foundation of self-sacrifice. Yes. But there's something more here. And that is that a conscious awareness of our unworthiness to be called a slave enables us to deal with the difficulties of life. It enables us to deal with the difficulties of life. Maybe I can draw it out this way. Being a slave of Jesus Christ Which Paul received by divine calling and appointment Made life very difficult for Paul It meant that he was bounced around the Mediterranean It meant that he had no place to call home It meant that he was often in danger of being harmed and killed It meant he was run ragged by a very demanding schedule That he had to work with his own hands to supply his own needs because he didn't receive a salary for the preaching of the Word, and yet he still had to find time to prepare to preach. So that meant long hours day after day. It meant that he lost many friends and perhaps his entire family. It meant that he was often in prison. It meant that he was despised. And it meant that at the end of his life, he ended up with absolutely nothing. And then to top it all off, it meant... And something he regularly experienced that the very people that he ministered the Word of God to were constantly a source of irritation to him. And if you step back and you evaluated the apostle's ministry by contemporary standards of measurement, he was a complete failure. By contemporary standards of measuring success in ministry, Paul was a complete failure. He would never be spotlighted in contemporary Christian magazines as an example of how to do the ministry. He would be considered ugly and embarrassing. Rough looking rather than Botoxed. He didn't have airbrushed professional photographs of himself and the church website in his portfolio. He didn't have nice clothes and fancy shoes accented with bling. He didn't have the smooth and stately mannerisms of pastor CEOs who are considered to be the cutting edge of what it means to be ministers of Jesus Christ and to be followed he had no trappings of success and what you find is that the apostle didn't sit around bitter and complaining and blaming God. Why am I saying all of this? Because I said the key to understanding who we are and that we don't even have uh, a right to consider ourselves worthy of being slaves of Jesus Christ is the key to handling life with all of its difficulties. You know, when we understand who we are, that we're just simply slaves who have been shown the mercy of Jesus Christ, that's the key to us enduring all of the difficulty in our lives. You see, wherever you are in life this morning, it's not by accident that you're there. The calling that you're in, the life station that you're in, the web of relationships that you have around you, everything that you have in your life has been divinely assigned unto you by God. And to some people, it's, uh, from an earthly perspective, a wonderful place to be in. There isn't a lack of resources. There isn't a lack of comfort. There's joy in the calling and vocation. And others find themselves in enormously difficult financial strains and bitter hardships. And they find that living day by day is nothing short than living in survival mode. And you know the thing that can happen to us when we get into those kinds of places in life and we understand that they're divinely assigned to us and apportioned out to us because God is the sovereign ruler and provider and governor of all of reality, the thing that we may begin to be prone to feel is self-pity. Self-pity and bitterness and complaint. But you see, the apostle has none of that He would have all the reason in the world to because of his genius and because of his energy and because of his productivity in laboring for the gospel. And the fact that it seemed to always turn out full of difficulty. The model of Paul here in accepting his identity and the fact that he's unworthy was the key for him to learn how to accept life's frustrations. He didn't deserve any better. And one thing that we need to tell ourselves this morning is that we don't deserve any better. We don't deserve any better. If we understand who we are in Christ, if we understand the fact that we are unworthy to even receive the least of the mercies that we have, we won't sit around complaining at God that somehow He has passed over us and done something wrong. We should feel lucky every day that we wake up. In whatever condition, in whatever place, in whatever call. We should feel blessed. We're unworthy to receive the least of God's mercies. The second thing that I want us to apply to ourselves this morning here, how could Paul do this? That's the key issue we're asking here, is how did he do this? How did he uh, work under this constant sense of divine compulsion and woe being unto him if he didn't fulfill the calling that God had given him and sacrifices uh, his rights and liberties? How did he do that? And the first was that he had a subjective awareness of his unworthiness to be a slave and then secondly he had an objective appreciation for the value of the gospel he had an objective appreciation for the value of the gospel you see here what he accents is that he preaches the gospel and that gospel must have been of great value to him he seems that to be the key of this passage He connects the value of the Gospel to his self-sacrifice. And there's one passage that draws that out to me so well, and that's 2 Corinthians chapter 4. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, where the Apostle himself makes the connection between the value of the Gospel and that being what drives his self-sacrifice in the service of God. And you know what he says in verse 7 is, we have this treasure in earthen vessels. We have this treasure. And you say, well, what is the treasure? Well, you look back to verse 6 and you see what the treasure is. He says, uh, God is the one who said, light shall shine out of darkness. And is the one who has shown in our hearts to give us the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. You see here what the treasure is. The treasure is the gospel. The treasure is this. That the light of the glory of God is now revealed in the face of Jesus Christ. And the light is the gospel. The fact that God is reconciled unto us through Jesus Christ. That's the light. The light is that God is not angry with us anymore for our sins because Jesus has died on the cross for our sins. That's the light. That's the Gospel. And what the Apostle says is we have this treasure. You see, he calls the Gospel treasure. Literally meaning something which is of exceptional and surpassing value. That is his estimate of the gospel. Something that is exceptional and of a surpassing value. He says that's what the gospel is. You see, that is object of appreciation for the value. It is exceptional. And now he ties that to his sacrifice. Your Bibles are open, you see that in verse eight and following following. He says, We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed, perplexed, but not despairing, persecuted but not forsaken, struck down but not destroyed, always carrying about in the body the dying of Jesus, so that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our body. For we who live are constantly being delivered over to the death for Jesus' sake, so that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our mortal flesh. So death works in us, but life for you. The Apostle says, do you want to know how you know that I appreciate the value of the Gospel? He says, look at what it's led me into. It has led me into limitless self Sacrifice. It has led me into being afflicted. It's led me into being perplexed. It's led me into being persecuted. It's led me into being struck down. It's led me to be constantly being delivered over to death. You see, he says, you can measure that I understand the objective value of the gospel by how I sacrifice for this thing that I call a treasure. The application in that for all of us is this. That we can measure for ourselves. We can measure for ourselves this morning. Whether we've appreciated the value of the gospel. And we can do it in the very way that the apostle did. What do I sacrifice? Does the gospel lead me to limitless sacrifice for Christ. Does it do that? You need to evaluate yourselves this morning. If you've understood the value of the Gospel, do you understand the value of this wonderful story? You can think through some of the songs that you know which talk about the value of the Gospel. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound That saved a wretch like me I once was lost, but now am found You can evaluate it by that great song Amazing Love How can it be That God my Savior would die for me But you can think through all of the beautiful Melodic Poetic Descriptions of the value of the gospel of Jesus Christ. You can think your way through the meaning of the gospel. The fact that God in heaven would send forth his son to die on the cross for our sins, for people who are unworthy. You can think through all of these things this morning and you can uh, see for yourself what the objective value of the gospel is. That can be measured too. But now we can see whether you appreciate the objective value of the gospel. We can see our appreciation by whether that leads us into willing self-sacrifice. What do we sacrifice? Are we willing to sacrifice our sinful desires? Are we willing this morning to sacrifice our sinful pride? Are we willing to sacrifice earth's possessions? Are we willing to demonstrate by our life that we've understood the objective value of the gospel? What does it look like? As we conclude this morning, what would it look like for us to indicate by our life that we have begun to appreciate the objective value of the gospel? Well, certainly I would begin with this. Surely a beginning place for evaluating whether somebody appreciates the objective value of the gospel is that they show up to church to hear it proclaimed. That is a foundational and beginning starting point. You cannot tell me that you appreciate the objective value of the gospel and yet you are so undisciplined that you don't even show up to church on a regular basis to hear it proclaimed. We can safely say that the gospel is of no value to those who regularly don't come to church to hear the gospel proclaimed. We can safely say that. But we can say more than that this morning. We can see that the gospel is objective value to us because of how we strive to promote it. There's no such thing as a person who is gripped by the objective value of the gospel and is gripped by an awareness that they are unworthy of the grace of Jesus Christ and yet have zero regard for His promotion if you have zero regard for its promotion, if you have zero regard and desire to tell others about Jesus Christ and to testify of Jesus Christ, and to long to see sinners come to Christ, you don't have an objective appreciation of the value of the gospel. If you are not led into praying for people to come to know Jesus Christ, you lack an objective appreciation for the value of Jesus Christ. Because what... A person will want to see who's been touched by the grace of Christ is that Christ is magnified. And, people of God, Christ is magnified when sinners come to Him for salvation. We also understand whether we have an appreciation for the objective value of the gospel if we are willing to give of our resources to promote the preaching of it. In other words, we can tell by how we use our wallet whether we believe in the objective value of the gospel because people who believe in the objective value of the gospel give of their financial resources so that the kingdom can advance, so that the ministry of the gospel can go forward. And we also understand whether we appreciate the objective value of the gospel We see that it moderates our lives, leads us to self-sacrifice so that we don't use our liberties in such a way that we cause others to stumble. You see, Paul's argument and example tell us there's a real, tangible, concrete connection between our objective appreciation of the value of the gospel. It's our life. May God help us this morning to see this connection. And may He help us. May He help us to manifest that in our lives. Let's pray.